Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the third-party podcast directories. I also have a blog you can check out if you'd like, and you can find that at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is uh, Saturday, January 29th, 2022. And on the backside of this new constitution and the power five power grab of voluntary regulation in college sports, we're going to be talking about what the next steps are. And as I've discussed in prior episodes, that's going to, I think, lead us to a discussion about big time college football. And big time college football is king. And sometimes I think that gets obscured in some of the discussions that come through the NCAA governance model. And I've talked uh, at length about the importance of Board of Regents and the fact that football won its freedom, big time football won its freedom from the NCAA, which once had a 30-year-long monopoly over televised football that came to an end in 1984, and it's been a different world ever since then. And it's been a world in which the big-time powerful football interests have aggregated their power in different ways, both in the marketplace and also at the regulatory level under the NCAA umbrella. And I think when discussions about big-time football are tethered to the NCAA in any way, and often they are because the Power Five football interests have decided to remain under the NCAA umbrella. I think it's very easy to lose sight of how dominant football is in the overall marketplace. And I think a lot of fans, even sophisticated fans, are sometimes confused at the relationship between the NCAA and the powerful football interests. And it's complicated and it operates on multiple levels. You have to understand uh, Board of Regents, you have to understand that the football product as a market participant in the overall marketplace of big-time college sports operates completely independent of the NCAA. The NCAA's involvement with big-time college football is very limited, and really it amounts right now only to certifying bowl games, and that's pretty much it. It has absolutely no financial connection to the big-time football product. And that's just the way the big-time football interests want it. And they have fought for that independence, and they have aggressively held on to that independence and all of the money that they can generate in the marketplace outside of the NCAA. And I did that episode on why the Power Five don't just leave the NCAA and start their own association, and they get a lot from being under the NCAA umbrella. So you might want to go back and, and check out that episode. It was titled Five Reasons Why the Power Five Don't Leave the NCAA and Form Their Own Association. But more importantly, I think people are confused at why the NCAA doesn't step in and take aggressive action to rein in the Power Five football interest when it appears that they are acting outside of the principles of the NCAA. And a great example of that is what happened with COVID in 2020 and the football decisions, the fall football decisions where you had a split. You had the Big Ten and the Pac-12 initially saying no, and then they wound up getting back into the game. You had the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 saying full steam ahead. And that 
really, I think, was puzzling to a lot of people because the rest of the entire NCAA system had shut down because of COVID. And I think a lot of people were asking themselves, why doesn't the NCAA step in and, and put their foot down and say, no, you can't do this. We're shutting you down. We're shutting the whole shooting match down because it's, it's not safe. It's simply not safe to play in this environment. But the NCAA didn't do a doggone thing. And the closest that Mark Emmert or any NCAA spokesperson came to acknowledging the truth was to say very obliquely and very quickly in an interview that the NCAA doesn't conduct the FBS football championships. That was a classic Mark Emmert NCAA cop-out statement for two reasons. One, that comment doesn't capture the truth of the existing market dynamics because of Board of Regents. And Emmert doesn't want to talk about that because it's an inconvenient topic because it exposes the NCAA as nothing more than a flaccid uh, vessel for Power 5 football interests. But the, the other reason that I think that was a cop-out is that I believe under the NCAA Constitution at the time, the Board of Governors had inherent jurisdiction in situations like this to come in and assert the NCAA's authority, but they weren't going to do that. And the reason they weren't going to do that is that the powerful football interests have been pushing the NCAA around really since the 1970s, pre-Board of Regents, to aggregate their power under the NCAA umbrella at the regulatory level. And they've been very successful, and they've done that, threatening to leave the association. And why is that a problem for the NCAA uh, if they don't get any money from football because I don't think it would just be Power Five football that would leave, would leave. I think the entire Power Five conferences would leave. Maybe they'll take some Group of Five conferences with them. And if that happened, March Madness would be about as compelling as a tournament down at the local YMCA. And if the March Madness contract lost its value, then the NCAA bureaucratic state would be in jeopardy. And the NCAA really would be reduced to a glorified state high school athletics association. Maybe that's what it should be. But the NCAA bureaucrats have been fighting like hell behind the scenes to preserve their gravy train. And that really was the centerpiece of the latest Power 5 football power play. But these dynamics have been in place for a long time. And one of the reasons that I want to go back and look at some of the congressional hearings that were conducted in the late 1990s and the early 2000s that relate to this battle between the haves and have-nots in college football and the haves, the what are now the Power Five football interests, wanting to dominate the marketplace, keep all the money to themselves, and basically exclude any potential competitors. And that's evolved into this distinction between the Power Five and the Group of Five. But in those hearings, what's really interesting is that you have the NCAA sitting at the witness table. So in the 1997 hearings, Cedric Dempsey, who came out of an athletics director mold, and he succeeded Richard Schultz, who was also an athletics director, and he succeeded Walter Byers. So Byers was in that job for, for 37 years, and Schultz is in for a while, and he leaves in a cloud of controversy. And then Dempsey takes over, and Dempsey, he's not, he's not unsure of himself. His testimony was really interesting. But if you know the history of big-time college football, really going back to the 1950s, and in particular, the post-Board of Regents era, you have to ask yourself, why is the NCAA president even uh, part of the discussion? Because the NCAA really has nothing to do with the issues in big-time football. And in those hearings, it was about the, the post-season. It was isolated just on the post-season and the bowl structure. And those discussions really started 
soon after Board of Regents and accelerated in the early 90s and continued really through the creation of the CFP. And, and they've been renewed again with this CFP expansion talk and this battle between the haves and have-nots and the, the inequities in the system. But the NCAA doesn't get a penny of football revenue. And you still have the NCAA president sitting at the table next to the conference commissioners, next to the, the big-time powerful football school interests making the argument to Congress that this is an essential component of the business model. Whatever it, whatever configuration of the postseason that the powerful football interests wanted in place, the NCAA sat next to them and said, yes, this is absolutely what we need to do. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit when we get to these hearings, but one of the lines of questioning from the Senate, this was actually a subcommittee of judiciary. This subcommittee had some heavy hitters on it, and, and Orrin Hatch, who was chair of the overall Judiciary Committee, he sat in on the hearings. And we even had four senators testifying. There was a panel of senator witnesses, including Mitch McConnell, and he was arguing in favor of the little guys. There was a really interesting array of interests there. But one of the lines of questioning was, what, is, what role does the NCAA have? There was some talk about a championship. So this was really the beginning of the debate about, well, let's have a playoff. The fans want it, and it's something that will will give us the ability to determine a true national championship. And of course, all the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries back then were saying, no, a football playoff's going to ruin college sports. It'll be the death of college sports. See, same people now running the CFP and making billions of dollars from it. So, I mean, m more just in-system stakeholder hypocrisy there. But one of the talking points was, why doesn't the NCAA just run this championship? Nobody talked about Board of Regents. So Cedric Dempsey's there to really support the status quo, which was this bowl system and no playoff. And when he was asked questions about whether the NCAA could run a football playoff, he was really doing the two-step there. And he said, well, we've looked at that and we did a study in 1994 and concluded that wasn't the direction we wanted to go. He didn't come out and say, we have no authority to do that. And if we tried to do that, the Power Five would just take their ball and go somewhere else. You know, that's And that's essentially what some of the Power Five witnesses said. Jim Delaney, then the commissioner of the Big Ten, said that at, the, at this hearing. So you, you have the NCAA sitting at the table, basically being a front person for these big-time, powerful football interests that it has absolutely no control over. And if you understand the legal framework and the history, you have to ask yourself why. And the answer is the answer that you're never going to hear, because it's the honest answer, is that Cedric Dempsey knows that if he loses the big-time football interests, he may lose his golden goose. He may lose his March Madness money. And then six years later, Miles Brand in 2003, when he was the NCAA president, He's sitting in the, I don't know if this was the Judiciary Committee or the Commerce Committee, but he's sitting right, right next to Harvey Perlman, who was then Chancellor of Nebraska, and he was promoting the big-time football interests. And Brand is spouting the same propaganda that Perlman is. No playoff. This is our money. You eat what you kill. This is America. And I thought if you worked hard and you did the right thing and you put a good product out there, then you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor. That's what we do in this country. That was their theme. And Miles Brand was right there saying, there's no basis 
for these powerful football interests to share the wealth or to try to bring in people who really don't belong. So it was very kind of Darwinian capitalism. That, that was their message. But you have to ask yourself, why was Miles Brand next to Harvey Perlman? Miles Brand has absolutely no skin in the game on its face because the NCAA doesn't get a penny football revenue, either the regular season revenue or the postseason revenue in large part because of Board of Regents. The postseason's a, a little bit different, and I guess it wasn't technically part of the Board of Regents case because those contracts weren't at issue, but the principle is the same. And I, th I think the ruling would cover the postseason if the NCAA tried to come in and monopolize that as well. So you, you have this complete independence because of this U.S. Supreme Court decision. Miles Brand has zero financial skin in, in this game. So why is he sitting next to Harvey Perlman running interference for the big time football interests? Because the quid pro quo there is that if he keeps football happy, he keeps his March Madness money. And that came through in, I think, some more subtle ways in his 2006 State of the Association speech when he was formulating the collegiate model as a business model. And he talks about the March Madness contract specifically and how important that was to the overall business model and this regressive transfer of wealth from the laborers and, and football and men's basketball to downstream non-revenue beneficiaries. But Brand really was putting his himself out there, I think, in a way that was difficult to defend based on the legal landscape, the regulatory landscape, the realities of the business model, and the fact that the NCAA had zero financial skin in the game when it came to big-time college football. And then Mark Emmert did the same thing in 2014 when the Power Five were lobbying for autonomy authority and autonomy legislation and this further separation and creating an association within an association, Mark Emmert's testifying in the Senate Commerce Committee, and he is testifying to lay the foundation for the uh, Division I Board of Directors to pass autonomy legislation. Why is Mark Emmert making that case? Why weren't the conference commissioners making that case? Why weren't the Power Five presidents making that case? Because the powerful football interests own the NCAA, and they own the NCAA president, and that goes back to the 1990s. When I say that big-time men's basketball has been used as nothing more than a bargaining chip by the powerful football interests. That's what I mean. And that bargaining chip was right there on the table in this most recent power play through the Constitution Committee. And the justification was that Divisions Two and Divisions Three absolutely needed their cut of the March Madness money. And that was essential. So we have to preserve the March Madness money first, keep everybody happy to get the votes we need for the Power Five to get their power grab. You buy off Divisions Two and Three, and there's two-thirds votes right there. Under the old Constitution, you need a two-thirds majority to amend the Constitution, and you get that by buying off Divisions 2 and 3, and then you make the NCAA bureaucratic state safe and sound, and then you just get everything you want under the NCAA umbrella, and you just march along. That's exactly what's happening right now with this Division One transformation committee. But all of that, th those wranglings are very complicated and nobody is talking honestly about the interplay between the Power Five interests, the NCAA national office, and the March Madness money. And I said at the very beginning of this podcast, those three elements are the Rosetta Stone to understanding the uh, business model of college sports and the incentive systems in college sports, the ones that they do not want to talk about because neither uh, Cedric Dempsey nor Miles Brand nor Mark Emmert talked about 
Board of Regents and, and its impact and the fact that the NCAA really has no financial skin in the game. They didn't talk about the March Madness money. They didn't talk about the fact that all of the association of wide expenses, all of the NCAA bureaucracy is funded exclusively from men's basketball and not from football. And the reason that they were very careful not to talk about those issues is because when you start going down that path, the whole house of cards starts to collapse. And the this ridiculous, bogus relationship between the NCAA national office and the football interests is exposed for what it truly is. And the NCAA is exposed as nothing more than a a flaccid bureaucratic state that's controlled by by the Power Five football interests. They're the puppeteer, and the NCAA is the puppet. And I think in the ways that the importance of the March Madness money has been put on the table to serve the Power Five's interest in the NCAA bureaucratic state, there is, I believe, a mis understanding about the importance of that money and its role in the overall marketplace. In the grand accounting of big-time college sports, that March Madness money is not that important, and it is increasingly less important as the value of the football product grows. And so one of the things I want to do to really set the table before we go into this historical analysis of how the big-time powerful football interests think about their role and their relationship to stakeholders, particularly the United States Congress, because that's relevant to what's going to happen when the Power Five goes back to Congress on the backside of this constitutional makeover. And that's certainly going to happen. But when you go back and you look historically at how those powerful interests have presented themselves to external regulators, namely the United States Congress, because that's really the only external regulatory challenge that they have gotten. They're wasn't any litigation, any antitrust litigation back then by athletes. So this was just about working out who is going to get a piece of the big football pile of cash. And the big time powerful football interest came in with a sense of uh, supreme confidence that they were going to be able to keep all that money and that only they were going to decide whether any of the have-nots were going to have a seat at the table or whether they they were going to get some table scraps. And Congress expressed very clearly, both in those 1997 hearings and then in the 2003 hearings, that they really didn't want to get involved, even though there were obvious and I think substantial antitrust concerns about the way that those football products had been packaged and the uh, agreements among the powerful football interests to uh, control the money, the marketplace, and all of the contracts with broadcast media outlets and, and with the bowl games. So we'll talk more about that. But I want to talk a little bit about the value of football, both at the normative level and then also at the financial level. And I'm going to use some of my personal experience with the two big products in, in big time sports. And I think I have an interesting perspective on it and history with it. And then I want to go to some financial databases to look at the overall financial picture of the products in big time college sports and talk about the revenue streams and talk about the differences between the the big time football schools and the have-not schools like the group of five schools and then a couple of basketball schools and to compare do a little compare and contrast and what what comes through in all of that is that football is king and it's not even close their dominance at the financial level at at the conference 
level where the conferences are doing packages with TV outlets and ESPN and Fox and all, all those people. Then you have the bowl games, the postseason, and then the, the CFP. And then more importantly, you have all of the institution-specific revenue, what comes in only at the school level. And it's th- those piles of cash are massive. And people forget. So there's so much focus on the postseason. There's so much focus on this relationship between the, like the CFP and the NCAA. The fact of the matter is, in the grand marketplace of college sports, those are secondary income sources from what actually comes through the universities at the school level, at the institution-specific level, through donations, through ticket sales, and through independent broadcast media rights. And it's a really interesting picture, but when you look at the, the data and you compare the football revenue to the basketball revenue to the other revenue, it's not even close, even at the basketball schools. And, and I'm going to talk about the source for the information I'm, I'm going to uh, share with you, but it's really eye-opening. And when you look at it through that lens, I, I think so much of how we perceive the, the big enterprise of college sports at the individual level is obviously a function of our personal experience and also of the information we have and the access to information. And again, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, one of my primary themes is that almost everything that we know about the big time college sports industry runs through filters that are conflicted. They, they run through filters of self-interest, and almost everybody who provides the information that we consume has a financial stake in the marketplace. And that causes some distortions in the perceptions that we have. And that's going to be playing out, I think, in a really interesting way now that the Power Five is kind of in the hot seat in terms of voluntary regulation at the national level under this new constitution. And it's a football show. ESPN has the biggest megaphone in all sports. They are up to their eyeballs in college football and in SEC football. And Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, as I have mentioned in prior episodes, is the co-chair of this transformation committee. And I would say right now he's the most powerful person in college sports. And when uh, Sankey talks, people listen, and he's going to be driving the train here uh, in in terms of what the the future of college sports looks like. And he's going to be engineering, I believe, the congressional campaign when the Power Five decides that the time is right to go back to Congress to ask for all these federal protections and immunities. So that's a really important filter, and it'll be interesting to see. The ESPN, in some ways, had the luxury of slapping the NCAA around because they really don't have any meaningful uh, contracts directly with the NCAA. They don't have the March Madness contract. There are some smaller contracts that they have, and they have some contracts for women's sports, and that was one of the beefs of the gender equity report, the Kaplan report, that the ESPN contracts weren't really being put to their highest and best use to showcase women's basketball. It remains to be seen if anything's going to be done on that. But ESPN's in a much different role now. They can take some pot shots, I guess, at the NCAA, but the NCAA's been neutered. And the only show in, in town right now at the regulatory uh, level is this transformation committee, which is loaded with Power Five interests and is being run by the commissioner of the SEC. And so far, based on what I've read in ESPN, it's Sankey for president. So ESPN is going to be in an interesting position here. But I think in, in big time football land, a lot of people there have a difficult time believing that in other parts of the country, football isn't that big of a deal. 
I mean, people from basketball hotbeds look at other parts of the country that are football crazy, and some of them just don't get it. And I've been on both sides of that fence, and I just want to talk a little bit about that and my, my takeaway from it. So I, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, which is one of the best stops along Tobacco Road. And for all intents and purposes, my world existed along about a 85-mile, 100-mile stretch from Winston-Salem to Chapel Hill to Durham, to Raleigh. And I wouldn't pay a whole hell of a lot of attention <laughs> to what was going on outside of that. And when you live in, on Tobacco Road, particularly if you live in Durham or Chapel Hill, because of the, the proximity of those two cities and the rivalry, there's no neutrality. I mean, you're, you're royal blue or you're powder blue. Occasionally you get an outlier and you get a, a Wolfpack fan or a, a Wake Forest fan. And God bless the kids who came in from out of state and they come into school first day in a new school. And the first question is, is it Duke or Carolina? They don't know what the hell you're talking about. They, they learn pretty quickly though. They learn pretty quickly. But for me, there was never a choice. I went to my first Duke basketball game in, I think, 1967. And I fell in love with basketball and I fell in love with Duke basketball. And I just couldn't get enough of it. That was my world. And I remember all of those teams, most of the players, all the coaches. Some of the most important memories from my childhood are built around my relationship to the game of basketball and all of the relationships that I formed through my love for the game. And and then I've mentioned a few times in this podcast, and I don't talk about it a lot, and I don't think there are many people who look at my my bio on my website, but I I went from this just died in the wool basketball fan and Duke fan to, to actually living my hoops dream. And I, I played basketball at Duke. I was a freshman coach case first year. And then I got a spot as a walk-on and, and then ultimately earned a full scholarship and then was a team captain my senior year. And those were interesting years. That was 80 to 84. And the ACC was loaded. Uh, those were the Michael Jordan years at UNC. And they won a national championship in 82. And then NC State won a national championship in 83. Those were the Ralph Sampson years at, at UVA. Clemson had a great team. Georgia Tech had a great team. Mark Price and John Sally. Wake Forest had really good teams. And then my senior year, I think, was Len Bias's freshman year. And that was his coming out party in the ACC tournament that year. And it was just the league was loaded. And I can still remember and I can still feel what it felt like for me the first time that I took the floor as a player wearing a Duke uniform in the Duke-UNC game or to take the floor in a Duke uniform in the Greensboro Coliseum during an ACC tournament game. That's just, I look back on it now and it doesn't even seem real to me. And obviously there's been a, a lot of talk about Coach K and, and his career and his legacy when he announced that he was going to retire at the end of the season. And so I, I have indulged some nostalgia. I, I try to do that judiciously. <laughs> And cautiously, but I have all kinds of memorabilia from when I played, and I, I it's in the attic, and I don't look at it much. And so I, I plan to to go through some of that, and and maybe do an episode or two about my thinking on Coach K's career. And it, it's not going to be as directly related to to my basketball experience and his influence as a coach, as much as it is his connection to institutions and his value to institutions. And that, that's how I 
see his legacy. And I've seen Duke from a lot of different angles, more than most. And it's, I've been connected to that institution in one way or another for most of my life. And as uh, I'm looking at some of the projects that, that I want to work on after I, I finish talking about college sports, it really comes down to the role of institutions and our connection to institutions, our faith in institutions, our trust in institutions. And we're losing it. We are losing it. And it scares the hell out of me. And I look at, at people like Coach K and his loyalty to institutions is just really inspiring. And I think that's how he's wired. And it's one of the things that's made him such a great coach and a great leader in various contexts. Boy, do we need people like Coach K now who can make institutions better. And his connection to Duke spans nearly half of Duke's existence. A lot of people don't understand that. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to talk about that, but I have, I have a, a different take. But one of the things that I remember, and this is just uh, one of those moments that I'll just, is seared in my memory, and I'll, I'll just never forget this. And this was a breakthrough event in Coach K's career. I don't know if it's going to get any attention, but that was our win in the semifinal game of the ACC tournament my senior year. That was in the 83-84 season, and we beat UNC, and that was turned out to be Michael Jordan's last year. He was a junior, and then he declared for the draft. They had a, they had just a phenomenal team, and they had Kenny Smith at the point. They had Brad Doherty in the post, and some great role players, Matt Doherty. They were just a phenomenal team, and we had two close regular season games against them. In the first game in Cameron, we really took them down to the wire, and I think it was really during that game that Coach Smith, UNC's legendary Coach Dean Smith, he looked at this Duke team and he realized that this was going to be a special program and that this Duke team, the one that wound up going to the national championship game in 86, was they were the real deal. And then the second game uh, of the regular season was the last game of the season in Chapel Hill. That was at Carmichael. And we lost in double overtime, just a phenomenal game. And Matt Doherty, who I, who I really liked, he had an interesting coaching career, but I really liked Matt. But he hit running 15-footer as time expired to send it into overtime. And then we lost in double overtime. I actually played in that game. And then a week later, we met that same team in Greensboro in the semifinals of the ACC tournament. And we won. We won. It went down to the wire. And I remember sitting on the on the bench, UNC had the, the last possession, but they had to go three quarters of, of the length of the court. And the inbound pass was designed to go to Jordan down along the sideline, but it curved. It was like a curveball and it faded out of bounds. And I had a perfect line on the ball and I'm watching it. And as that thing is going out of bounds, I just exploded and the, 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 the crowd went crazy. The team went crazy. The scene in the locker room was uh, unlike anything that I had experienced. And there was this sense that, that we had arrived, that this group of Duke players had gotten over a hurdle that was transformative for, for the team. And I think ultimately for the program. I don't, I don't know how Coach K views that now. I mean, you know, he's had so, so many incredible games, but that game stood out to me. And when ESPN Classic was doing their rivalry week games, they would rerun both the overtime game and then the ACC tournament game, the Duke Carolina games from that year. And I would always watch those things. And I got a couple of cameos there. I don't even know if they're doing that anymore. But when I reflect back on my youth and my childhood and then my college years, it is all built around Tobacco Road basketball and 
I think it's hard for a lot of people who haven't been in, in that environment to understand that it's not just the, the rivalries. It's also understanding the importance of the game to at the community level, at the cultural level, at the at the values level, and and they all interconnect. And and while my memories are, are dominated by my connection to Duke basketball, I know exactly where I was in 1974 when North Carolina State beat UCLA in the national semifinal game, and then went on to win the national championship game. That game against UCLA wasn't just a game between North Carolina State and UCLA. The way I saw it and the way that I took it in, and I was going crazy <laughs> during that game, and I, I remember who I was with and what I was doing, and I so badly wanted NC State to win that game because that was a victory for Tobacco Road. That was a victory for North Carolina, for the state of North Carolina. That was a victory for basketball supremacy, and it was beautiful. And then I remember where I was when UNC beat Georgetown in, in 82. And then, of course, when NC State beat Houston in, in 1983. And I had a different relationship to those games because you know, I was playing at Duke at the time. And we played in those teams, both very, very good teams. But and this is something I think even some of my teammates not, who weren't from North Carolina didn't understand. But I actually took pride in the fact that UNC and NC State won that game. And I, I'm saying that, and there are probably some of my Duke friends who are going to yell and scream at me, but it was a Tobacco Road thing. It was a North Carolina thing. And I was proud of North Carolina basketball, writ large. And it's just a Tobacco Road thing, man. <laughs> if you haven't lived it, you don't understand it. And that is just so deeply embedded in my DNA that I can't see the world any other way. And so that experience stood in stark contrast to the next phase of my life when I went to law school at the University of Georgia. In North Carolina, having played basketball for Duke has a little cachet. Man, that I lost some cred when I crossed the state line there, driving from South Carolina into Georgia, because it is all football all the time. I had never seen anything like it. I'd never experienced anything like it. My connection to college football, I went to Duke games all the time. And when I was a kid, I'd go and the, the youth teams I played on, we'd wear our jersey to the game and hang out. And most of the time, the stadium was only half filled, and it was a very small stadium. And Wallace Wade only seated, uh, I don't know, 40,000 people then. I don't know if they, I think they may have expanded it a little bit. But a small stadium, half full, and beautiful fall day, and you're running around having fun. That, that was my relationship to college football. I'd been to games at UNC, and, I, and the Duke Carolina game was an exception. That was always played at the end of the season, and that game was always sold out. And, and Wallace Wade, it was usually about a 50-50 crowd. It was an, an incredible environment. That, that was fun. But it was just this once a year thing and it was never the main event and it wasn't really an important part of the culture. And let's see, what other, I, I went to an NC State game, again, a similar environment as you'd find at UNC, much more interesting and intense than Duke football, but nothing like SEC football. I guess I went to games at UVA as well, up in Charlottesville, same kind of thing. This Southeastern football thing, this SEC football thing is just, it, it, it's a whole nother level. Part of that is just the sheer scale of, of the game. And But when I got to Athens and football season was cranking up, it was just, it was almost intimidating. I, I'd never experienced thing, a, anything like that. And I was in a true college town. Durham then really wasn't a college town. I would argue that it's more of a college town now than it was when I was in school. But Athens is just an incredible place. I loved Athens. And uh, it's a great college town. 
but on a football Saturday, it, it is like a tsunami of red and black roll in. And actually, they start rolling in on Wednesdays. The RV caravan starts rolling in and they're everywhere. I could walk from the law school to, to my apartment from RV to RV, I think. And the sheer scale of SEC football is unlike, unlike anything that I had ever experienced. And it, it was really, in some ways, hard for me to relate to because I wasn't cultured into it and didn't have the experiential relationship to it. I almost had the, the kind of the Tocquevillian advantage where I'm coming in as an outsider observing and I'm like a journalist kind of seeing what this is all about. And it just didn't make sense to me, honestly. But it was quite a spectacle. And football uh, Saturdays were, were like the largest family reunion in, in the country. You know, everybody came in and everybody's reading from the same page and everybody's part of the same family. And they're sitting in a 85,000 seat football stadium having a shared experience. That's a powerful, powerful dynamic that has has uh, resonance, I think, at, at the cultural level, and, and it connects people in ways that I think is hard for people who haven't experienced that to, to fully understand. And so after, after I finished law school, I went to work in Atlanta. My, my uh, wife was doing her residency there. She's in, in medicine. And uh, when she finished up, we actually moved back to, to Athens, and, and she was in private practice, and I was working for a firm and doing some stuff at the law school as well. And we had, a, we had our first child in Atlanta, our son, and then our daughter was born in Athens. And I went to a few football games, and I just, I just never forget this. So I guess my son was probably two years old, maybe. And I, somebody at my firm gave me tickets to the UGA Tennessee game. Tennessee came in, and this was the Peyton Manning years, and I really loved him as a quarterback in college, and I wanted to see him play. But the tickets were like close to the Tennessee section, and I had experienced the Bulldog fan base in all of its glory. And uh, it's intense. There's no question it's intense, but it was civil. People were following the rules of society. And man, these Tennessee fans, God love them, man. They were wide, wide open. And there was a lot of a lot of that Tennessee whiskey was floating around in the stands, a boatload of coonskin caps, and they fired up Rocky Top a few times. And I'm holding my two-year-old son, and things got a little too rowdy right there on the, on the edge between the Tennessee fans and the Georgia fans. So I got to, to see Peyton Manning for about a half, and then I got the hell out of there with my son safely in tow. It was just such a, a different experience. And then what I also realized when I was practicing in Atlanta and then back in Athens is that the influence of football in the SEC, and I know this is true in the Big Ten, I can only speak to, to my experience in, with the SEC, but the importance of football as a cultural phenomenon is in every nook and, and cranny in the state power base. It uh, influences the state government, the legislature, and its thinking and its decision-making. It influences the governor's office. It, it influences, I think, the judicial branch. And I, I think there's this in invisible governmental force field that sort of protects the culture and, and the product. And uh, any threat to that prized cultural asset is not well received. And I think it, it's one of the reasons, I think, that you haven't seen as much uh, pushback from athletes at, at these high-powered schools. And there's been all this talk about athletes organizing as laborers to use self-help or have some kind of a 
organized labor response to their uh, working conditions. But the power of the invisible forces that protect any external criticism or any external regulatory threat are, are really breathtaking. And I think that explains, in part, why it's been so hard for athletes to try to use a self-help remedy and organize as laborers to protest their working conditions or their financial relationship with the institutions. And I, I just think most people don't understand how difficult that would be. And there's all this talk about it at the theoretical level and then this movie that came out, National Championships. But the reality of taking that on, it is just daunting. It's intimidating. And it would be almost impossible to measure the, the personal cost to any athlete who wanted to go that route or any group of athletes that wanted to go that route. That would be a defining moment for them for the rest of their lives. And they would be pariahs. And uh, the same would be true in basketball, in the basketball hotbeds. And I just think people don't, they just don't understand what that would, would look like for the athletes, even if it achieved the objective they were seeking. And, you know, that's a, that's a conversation for another episode when I start talking about these labor issues. And it's so easy to, to talk about at the theoretical level and at the movie script level, but n nobody's really drilled down, I think, on the, on, at the normative level, the personal level. And the, the, the practical level for the people who actually would be putting themselves in harm's way. So we'll, we'll talk more about that. So that, that's kind of my personal take on the, the power of big time football in America. And again, I saw it through the lens of SEC football. I haven't really dived into the Big Ten football culture, but I have a hard time imagining a another football culture in the United States that could match with what the SEC brings to the table. And this has uh, historical roots really going back to the early 20th century and you know what Harvard, Princeton, and Yale did in, in the first two decades of the 20th century. And uh, football caught fire. It just took the nation by storm and it's irresistible. It's just irresistible. And you had then through the moral acts in the second half of the 19th century in the land grant universities, you had these massive state universities that sort of took over the marketplace and brought the game to a scale that Ivy simply couldn't produce, I don't think. And I think that was in part one of the reasons that in the 1940s, the Ivy group, the precursor to the Ivy League, decided to just jump off the train and they went with the uh, no athletic scholar model. And so what we have now, I think, is what Ronald Smith, the sports historian, talked about. I think this might have been in his Sports and Freedom book from 1988, but he talked about the, the big three, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, and Yale in particular, with Walter Camp and the development of big-time football. And then there was this ritualized cloning of the Ivy League model, and then it got to scale with these big state universities. And it is just a, a, a juggernaut that is irrepressible. So now I want to transition into the financial importance of big time college football. And I want to talk a little bit about some of these primary revenue streams. And then I want to talk about how the NCAA institutions are required to put together information on revenues and expenses and present them to the NCAA. And they also have some federal reporting requirements under the EADA. 
and that's the Equity in Athletics Disclosures Act, which is really a Title IX oriented bill, but it, there, there are federal disclosures that are required that really go to some of the core financial issues, but they're done in the gender equity context. And that's been, uh, I think, a blueprint for some of these databases. And then the NCAA has a list of accounting procedures. They, one of the things they've done well, I, I give the NCAA so much grief, but one of the things I think they've done well and have done in good faith is to try to standardize the accounting procedures and putting together financial information. And all this stuff is, is run through the NCAA and put into an NCAA database. It's not a public database. I think that's a problem. So these uh, private databases that have gotten information have gotten them through Freedom of Information Act requests, public records requests from the public universities in big time football conferences, the FBS conferences, the Power Five and the Group of Five. And so you have a number of private databases. So you have the NCAA database, but again, that's not accessible. Then you have the USA Today database. So they were a pioneer in getting these public records requests and getting the information and then and publishing some basic data about the, the Power Five schools. I don't know if they did the Group of Five. Then the Knight Commission took that and created their own database. And then very recently, Sportico, which is an online sports publication, and uh, Sportico gets pretty deep in the weeds on the financial details of sports writ large, not just college, but professional. But they recently put together their own database, and it's an interactive database. And of the private databases that I have reviewed, I think it's the best one. I really like it. I'm going to use some information from that database because I think it's presented in a way that's just easier to understand. And uh, they do pie charts and look at the various categories of revenues and expenses and where the money goes. And then they have a graph that compares comparison between the revenues and expenditures for the sports. So you can look at where football revenues and expenses are versus men's basketball revenues and expenses. And then there's some other categories. But there's some important caveats to all this for any of these databases. And this has been one of the problems in college sports is that it's very, very difficult to know how much money is in the system, how it comes in, and how it is spent because all of this accounting is done under the higher education umbrella. And higher education is just this massive game, a uh, shell game, really, of internal revenue streams and expenses crossing each other. And you have subsidies and cross subsidies and related party transfers. And in one department, something's counted as an expense. And in another department, the exact same thing's counted as revenue. And it's almost impossible to, to tease out. But you know, the Sportico database has all these disclaimers. And the, dis the disclaimers have disclaimers. So I guess I'll, I'll just start real quickly with this NCAA document that has all of the required reporting items. And, and these are supposed to be done by an accountant and then signed off by the university president or chancellor. And they're called agreed upon procedures. And I'm just, I'm only going to focus really on the revenues in my discussion here to talk about the importance of football revenue and how it compares to the other revenue producing sport, men's basketball, and then where that money actually comes from. And I think it's really interesting. And I don't think a lot of people understand that the bulk of the revenue doesn't come from all of these bowls and all these and the CFP and, and all that stuff or, or from March Madness money. It comes from instant institution-specific revenues. But let me see, there's a an exhibit. The first exhibit in this document, it's a long document, it's 50 pages long, but it lists all of, this is Appendix A, all of the revenue categories. And so I went through this. There are 19 specific revenue categories. And I really just w went through to make sure that there weren't any obvious omissions. Like I was worried that they were, they were going to be uh, a little loosey-goosey with shoe and apparel money. It looks like that is covered. And again, these are what the NCAA 
wants to be reported. I don't know. I don't, since I, I don't have the actual original responses and all the information as it's packaged and presented to the NCAA, I, I don't know on a school-by-school -school basis. So I'm trusting the these databases, and, and in particular the Sportico database, to have made those judgments. And if there were any glaring omissions, they would note it. But it ranges from just, for example, you have ticket sales and you have government support, you have institutional support, and you have, let's see, donations, charitable contributions. That's a big category. And a lot of money comes in through donations. And then you have in-kind services, compensation and benefits by a third party. And that includes shoe and apparel income and also camp compensation. There's actually two, another separate category for summer camps. And that's a huge ticket item for both football and and basketball, but particularly men's and women's basketball, they make a, just a ton of money on their summer camps and they get a sweetheart deal on the facilities rentals. And then you've got the media rights and then you get, hey, you have NCAA distributions, which really amount to the March Madness money. But some of that March Madness money runs through the conferences. And so that's not entirely teased out. And then let's see, then you have the conference distributions that come from a, the conference entities through conference contracts. And again, that seems like it's a huge chunk of change. But when you look at the pie chart, it, it's not as big relative to some of the other revenue streams that come in from the institution. And then you have, let's see, you know, bowl generated revenue, royalties, licensing, advertising, sponsorship, let's see, endowments. And a lot of the athletics departments are going with restricted endowments. So people are giving money earmarked for athletics and they're trying to endow programs and, and scholarships, athletics scholarships. And then you have, let's see, bowl revenues. And so you have all these revenue line items and I think it's pretty th comprehensive. So every year, the institutions are supposed to report to the NCAA their revenues and expenses and put it in a, a coherent format that an accountant prepares and signs off on and then the university president signs off on that. And then uh, Sportico obtained that information, whatever the schools sent to the NCAA, Sportico went on a school-by-school -school basis and served public records requests and got what was sent to the NCAA. But it's only for public institutions because private institutions are not subject to public records requests and they did for all FBS schools. So this is Power 5 and Group of 5. And um, in their database, I think they had 115 of the 135 schools, maybe. I think there were 20 schools that were private and, and claimed they didn't have to provide information. But most of the schools did. And then Sportico... Uh, took that information and uh, compiled it into some broader categories that make sense. And the reason I want to use this database, despite all of its qualifications and all the nuances and idiosyncrasies in accounting in higher education, is that at least I'm comparing apples to apples within the database. And I'm painting with a very, very broad brush here. And, and I think the, the database kind of does this as well. But you do get to see, I think, pretty clearly the, the patterns in terms of the total operating revenues and the comparison between football and, and basketball and then the broad categories of, of where that money comes in. So what I did is that I, I took uh, a couple of representative schools from a couple of different categories just for reference. So I have the big time schools and I've got, let's see, I've got Alabama and Ohio State and Oklahoma, one from, from different conferences and they're, they're big time schools and they've all made it to the CFP and they are football schools. I don't think there's any question about that. Then I took a couple of big time schools that have more of a basketball orientation. So I took UNC and Kentucky. I would love to have looked at Duke, but they're a private 
university and they didn't have to provide any information. And then I looked at some group of five schools that are on the higher end. And a couple of these schools actually are going to joined the Big 12. So I, I took Cincinnati and I took uh, Central Florida, both going to the Big 12. And they're at the, the very top of the group of five. And, and then I used Ohio University that's uh, a lower level group of five school. They're in the MAC conference. And I just pulled them for the heck of it. And because the co-chair of the transformation committee, Julie Cromer, is the AD at Ohio. But it's, it's good to see the difference between like the Cincinnati's and the UCF's in the group of five versus the lower level group of five. There's just a, a stunning disparity there and then an eye-popping disparity between the big-time Power 5 football schools and then any group of five product. But in all of these schools, in all these categories, well, one thing remains constant, and that is that their overall football revenue either dwarfs the rest of the budget or substantially exceeds it, even at the quote-unquote basketball schools. So the way the categories that Sportico uses on the revenue side, uh, let me go to one of the big time schools because it's clearer there, I think, than I'm going to talk about, do a little bit of compare and contrast. But like at Alabama, for example, the revenue categories, and this is true for all these schools, you have ticket sales that are usually at the top of the list. You have uh, media rights that are usually at the top of the list. You have donations at the top of the list. All of those are institution-specific revenue streams. So we have revenue streams at the institution level that stay home with the institution and they don't have to share that with anybody. Then you have these conference revenues that are a, a step above and the, the SEC has 14 schools. So the SEC does contracts with ESPN for regular season programming. They have contracts with ESPN for the, CF, for the CFP and the bowl games and then non-CFP bowl games, and they have conference networks. So ESPN owns the SEC network. All that revenue goes, that goes into the conference pie, okay? And then above that, you have NCAA revenue. And the only NCAA revenue is from March Madness. And when we look at what that looks like, it's, it is literally at these big time uh, football schools, the March Madness money is literally a sliver in this in this pie chart. So you got media rights, miscellaneous, ticket sales, donations, licensing and ads, conference distributions, direct institutional support, and NCAA distributions. That direct institutional support category is important because that's where the universities essentially subsidize the athletics departments. And that's been a, a point of uh, debate, and it's been a hot button issue for those from the ac academic perspective and those hostile to big time college sports because they have made the argument that the money from freshman English is being used to pay for the football equipment. And I think that's overblown and these numbers tend to support that. But remember that one of the fundamental tenets of, of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model and one of the, I think, one of the conceits of the big time power five athletics programs and universities are that these big time universities in, in the football and basketball sweepstakes are supposed to be self-sustaining, so they shouldn't need any direct institutional support. So l let me start with the high-powered football schools, Alabama, Ohio State, and Oklahoma, in, in that order. So Alabama had total revenues in 2019-2020 for all revenue streams, for all sports, of $189 million. Of that $189 million, $50 million came from media rights, broadcast contracts, okay? $40 million came from ticket sales, 
20 million came from donations. So right there, we've got $110 million and we haven't left campus. In all of these reports, in all these graphs, there is a quote-unquote miscellaneous provision that has huge value. And it's true across all these big schools. And I'm not quite sure what it means. And I couldn't find a definition for miscellaneous. So this is just a pie chart. But what's important here is that once you get below the institution-specific revenue, you're down to uh, conference distributions are only $12 million, And the NCAA distribution for Alabama was less than a million dollars. Now, some of that could have run through the conference distribution. I'm not sure. But that's $13 million from the conference and from the NCAA. And again, I didn't try to reconcile those figures with what's in the conference form 990s. They suggest a much higher conference distribution. So maybe that's some of that's in miscellaneous. But again, we're comparing apples to apples and Sportico is using the same criteria for each school. But when, when you just look at those categories and you, what you see is that a substantial majority of the overall revenue comes in from the institution itself and ticket sales and donations and their their own media rights and their licensing and, and ads and, and all that stuff. That is the lion's share of the revenue, not the big bowl payoffs, not the CFP, not the conference championship, not March Madness tournament money. Those are nice additions, but they are not the meat and potatoes. And then when you come over to the graph, it shows a breakdown based on sport. So in the total revenues of the total, let's call it 190 million, 110 million of that revenue is attributable to Alabama football. 15 million is attributable to Alabama basketball, men's basketball. And then there's a non-sport specific category. I don't know what that means, but just comparing, again, accepting Sportico's analysis here, the football product brings in, what, I don't know, nine times more revenue than men's basketball. I mean, in the grand scheme of the, the revenue streams here at the University of Alabama, men's basketball is a footnote, okay? Let's go to Ohio State, and they had uh, total revenues of, let's call it $230 million. It's a little bit north of that, but $230 million. Of that, $65 million from ticket sales. That stays home with the campus. $48 million in donations, 45 million in media rights, 30 million in licensing and ads. Again, that, that is the lion's share of the revenue, and we haven't left campus yet. And then the conference distribution is 11 million, and then the NCAA distribution's 3 million. And then you come over to the graph that shows the comparison between Ohio State football revenue and Ohio State men's basketball revenue, and you have the same kind of disparity. 115 million of that uh, 230 million is directly attributable in this accounting to football, only 22 million to men's basketball. So not even close. Football is king. And again, when you look at the, the NCAA distributions on this pie chart, it is literally a sliver. So that's Ohio State. Now, Oklahoma, similar profile, 160 million total revenue. You had 43 million ticket sales, 40 million donations, 30 million uh, media rights, let's see, 15 million licensing and, and ads. And again, the substantial majority of that total revenue 
coming from revenue sources that are on campus. And then you have 11 million in conference distributions, about 3 million in NCAA distributions. Again, a very small slice of that pie. And over to the graph, total revenue, football versus men's basketball, over 100 million for men's for football, and then only 8 million for men's basketball. Not even close. Not even close. So now let's challenge that theory a little bit, the Power 5 football theory a little bit. And let's look at UNC and Kentucky. Again, both Power 5 conference schools. Kentucky's in the SEC, along with Alabama. UNC is in the ACC. And both of those schools, I would say that their dominant sports reputation revolves around their basketball product. I don't know. And Kentucky had a pretty good year this year in football. But these are basketball schools. And again, I would love to have included Duke here, but I couldn't. So let's look at UNC. And they had uh, a smaller revenue stream. They had about $110 million in overall revenue. And, but again, as with Ohio State, Alabama, and Oklahoma, almost all of it comes from institution revenue sources, revenue streams that don't leave campus and aren't shared with anybody else. So you had $25 million in ticket sales, so the $23 million in media rights, $21 million in donations. You had, uh, let's see, $12 million in licensing and ads. And then we have this, this miscellaneous category. Who knows what that means? The conference distributions for UNC were only $7 million, and the NCAA distributions were only uh, $2 million. Again, they pale in comparison to the revenue streams that, that come in at the institutional level. So the conference and then the NCAA distributions pale in contrast. Now, let's look at uh, football versus basketball. So of that $110 million in revenue, $50 million came from football. Guess how much came from men's basketball? 25 million. Half of that, actually 26. So basically, even at a basketball school that is basketball centric, that has built a lot of its fundraising around basketball, the football program, which has been successful, but not, not big time successful, they generate twice the revenue as men's basketball. And that's because of scale. It's, it's scale. But these numbers are eye-popping. And I don't think a lot of people understand the extent of the gap between football and men's basketball. And then the fact that a substantial majority of this money never leaves campus because it's generated on campus and it's not shared with anybody else. So let's look at Kentucky. Kentucky has a little bit bigger budget. They brought in about $145 million in total revenue. Let's see, about $40 million in ticket sales, about $25 million in donations, about $50 million in media rights. Let's see, about $5 million in, in licensing and ads. And again, that's, I don't know, what's that, 80% of overall revenue comes from campus-specific, campus-located revenue streams. And then their conference distributions, about $11 million. The NCAA distribution, about $1.2 million. And that's just a sliver. It's a sliver in the pie. Now, Let's look at the revenues comparing football and men's basketball. And this is about as close a gap as you're going to find at a Power 5 school, except at Duke. I think Duke's a, a rare exception. They're really an outlier, and, and they may be the only school in the Power 5 that may have actually have more basketball revenue than football revenue. I'm not sure, but that would be close, I'm sure. But Kentucky football brought in $45 million in revenue, and then men's basketball brought in $30 million in revenue. So that's a little bit closer, but you have substantially more money coming in for football. Now, Kentucky is a little bit of an outlier. They have a massive miscellaneous income stream here of uh, $70 million. I have no idea what that means. But as they allocate between football and men's basketball, football still wins, even at Kentucky and UNC. And I want to say for all these Power 5 schools, the, the three big-time football schools and then these two basketball-centric schools in the Power 5, they either have zero 
direct institutional support or a very nominal direct institutional support. So at least based on these numbers, you don't have the university on the university side, the academic side, subsidizing the athletics departments. And that's the way that the business model is supposed to run under Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model and the belief that at these big time football and basketball schools that the athletics department should be fully self-sustaining. And so now let's look at these group of five schools, the have-nots. All those big time football schools, they're the haves in this football discussion about postseason ball and CFP revenue. They're the haves and then the have-nots are the group of five. And what I did for the have-nots here was to select two that actually are going to move into the have category. So they're at the top of the food chain among the have-nots. Cincinnati and UCF. So I want to just go through their numbers, and that's going to change substantially when they join the Big 12, assuming the Big 12 stays together. So let's start with Cincinnati, who I think is the number one ranked group of five school in terms of revenue. But when you compare it to the revenue streams from the other big time schools like Oklahoma, Alabama, and Ohio State, they're not even in the same ballpark. They're not on the same planet. So Cincinnati had total revenue of $81 million. Remember, Ohio State was $233 million, Alabama was $185 million, Oklahoma about the same. So again, you're, in, you're on two different planets right there. But what's interesting about their revenue streams, the highest revenue stream, the number one revenue stream was direct institutional support of $30 million. What's that, 40%? of their total revenue came from a subsidy from the university. And that's one of the problems with this disparity. And one of the arguments that the have-nots have always made is that they're going broke trying to keep up with the big dogs. They don't have the facilities. They don't have the, the name brand. They don't have the conference affiliation that allows them to bring in all these top dollar revenue streams. In order to compete and try to remain relevant in the have-have-not discussion and try to get a seat at the have table, they're spending ridiculous money out of general university operating ex expenses to try to nip at the heels of the Power Five. And that's a huge percentage of their overall revenue. So let's see, from ticket sales, they only made $8 million. I mean, at these other schools, you're talking $50, $60 million in, in ticket sales. They get $8 million. They get uh, $7 million in licensing. They get $13 million in donations. Again, this is pocket change for the big time football schools for Alabama, Oklahoma, and Ohio State. And then their conference distributions are 2 million. So one fifth of what the conference distributions are for the Power Five schools and zero media rights. Zero media rights. And then when we come over and look at the comparison between football and basketball, you see the same pattern. Same pattern holds true. So football revenue was uh, 10 million and, and basket, men's basketball was 4 million. They have a really high miscellaneous category. So again, I, I don't know what that means. But that's a fundamentally different profile. And now that Cincinnati is going to be joining the Big 12, that's a couple of years away. And again, assuming the Big 12 doesn't get picked apart, Cincinnati's economic profile is going to just fundamentally change for the better. And, and again, that's important when we look at this have-have-not debate as it's played out really since the 1970s. So let's look at Central Florida. They're in the same class as Cincinnati among the group of five. And there again, they're going also, they're moving up. They're, they're going to be a big dog now with, with the Big 12. So they had uh, total revenue of, let's call it 70. It's a little bit south of that, but let's call it 70 million. Okay. 
they had, let's see, ticket sales of only $5 million, licensing $9 million, donations $12 million. They had a miscellaneous category of $27 million. And then they had direct institutional support of $9 million, not on the scale of Cincinnati, but that's a substantial portion of their overall revenue. So they're getting a substantial subsidy from general university revenue streams to try to make this whole athletics side work and to try to remain relevant in the have-have-not debate. And it is expensive. It is expensive. Their NCAA and conference uh, distributions are de minimis. Four million in conference distributions, uh, less than half a million in NCAA distributions, zero in media rights. And then comparing football and basketball, you have the same pattern as with all the other schools. It's massive football revenue relative to basketball revenue. So $33 million attributable to football revenues, $3 million, one-tenth to men's basketball. And then I, I threw in Ohio University to give you a better picture of where most of the group of five schools actually reside in the FBS market, in this group of five and power five have, have not mosaic. Ohio University, who's in the Mid-American Conference, which is made up of Midwestern schools, it's like the junior varsity of the Big Ten, I guess is one way to put it. I looked at a bunch of, of different schools, so I think this is pretty reflective of the group of five schools that simply aren't running with the big dogs. They're not at the level of Cincinnati or UCF. But Ohio University had total revenue of $31 million. Their number one revenue stream, direct institutional support of $18 million. $18 million. So well over half of their entire budget, their revenue streams in athletics are subsidized by the general university. And the, the farther you go down the food chain, the more you see that. And when you get down into lower level division one and all of divisions two and divisions three, the direct institutional su support is like way north of 70% and at Divisions 2 and Divisions 3, it's 100%. So in the vast majority of NCAA institutions, the athletics departments are paid for out of general university operating expenses, which I've talked quite a bit about because this belief that the Power Five have that these athletics departments have to be fully self-sustaining is a conceit unique to that market. And it's the product of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model. And it really distorts the way that the, the revenue expense equation works for the almost 95, maybe 98% of the rest of college sports. So you have at Ohio University that direct institutional support that's more consistent with what the rest of college sports actually looks like. That's not the outlier. That's the rule. The outliers are the Power Five schools where they have very little direct institutional support. But in terms of, let's see, ticket sales, a million dollars. A million dollars. Then you have donations, two million dollars. You have licensing and ads, one million dollars. Conference distributions, 1.6 million. NCAA distribution, 600,000. Media rights, 175,000 dollars. You're not in a different on a different planet. You're in a different galaxy. But what's hold, holds true, even with Ohio University, is that when you look at the comparison between football and men's basketball, football revenue dwarfs that attributable to men's basketball. You have 10 million attributable to football and then 2 million to basketball. So that's the constant. That it doesn't matter where you are in the FBS, from Ohio State down to the lowest level group of five school, football is king. And the vast majority of the revenue that comes in, comes in at the institutional level.
And that's just a, a reality of the big-time college sports marketplace that I don't think gets enough attention. So that's the long and short of it in black and white, in pie charts and, and graphs. And that's the reality of the marketplace. So whatever your frame of reference is, whatever your point of reference is, whether it's distorted like mine was, because I, I would have believed for a good part of my adult life because of my personal experience that uh, basketball made way more money and constituted a, a much higher percentage of overall revenues than it actually does. That's just not true. It's not true. E even at the, the big basketball schools. And I wouldn't have had any appreciation of just how much money in big time football comes from institutional revenue streams, not from all these revenue streams that get all that grab all the headlines. So that's an important understanding to have as we go into the history of the evolution of the relationship between the the powerful football interest and and the NCAA and the way that these football interests think about their place in college sports. And that's really going to come through loud and clear in these 1997 hearings and these 2003 hearings in this discussion about the battle between the haves and the have-nots in college football as it relates to postseason revenues. That's the other thing. And I'm going to contextualize this when I actually get to the hearings. But all this congressional activity that's occurred around these antitrust issues in big-time college football has related to the postseason products and access to bowls and, and access to the CFP theoretically. That's been the battle line there, not really what's happening in the regular season, but what happens in the regular season, what happens at the institution, what happens with ticket sales, donations, and, and all of the local media rights, that's way more important, right now at least, in comparison to the postseason payoffs. And no doubt those postseason payoffs are getting bigger and bigger. And if the CFP expands, you're going to be seeing some of those revenue streams altered a bit, but I don't think there's going to be a postseason product that's going to come within field goal range, pardon the pun, of the revenue streams that are generated at the institutional level. All right. So with that, I'm going to wrap this thing up. And in the next episode, I'm going to start laying some historical foundation to bring us up to this 1997 hearing. And we're going to get an interesting peek into the world according to the big time football boys. All right. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.